On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we have got a lot to talk about, starting with cannabis. There's a couple of guys who own a company in town here who are hosting a seminar to answer questions that people have eight months after it's become legal about cannabis. And what are those questions? Well, they'll tell you. Uh, we're going to be chatting with Jameson Reese, who is a Hamilton guy who is about to be drafted on Friday, likely, in the NHL draft. He's already out in Vancouver. It's an exciting time for guys like him. And... We catch up with an 85-year-old guy named Bill Baker, who is one of the six surviving, still-alive former inmates of Alcatraz. He'll tell us what life was like on the rock. It's got a long story. It's a good story. Grab a cool beverage or a warm one and settle in. You'll want to take a listen. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are... Roughly, give or take a few days, but we are roughly eight months now into the great Canadian cannabis legalization experiment, for better or for worse, depending on your position. But it was back in October that it became legal, and here we are in June now. And yet there are still questions. People still have questions, clearly. And my next two guests uh, are hoping to answer some of those questions. Brandon Clark and Mike Dimkevich uh, are co-owners of a company that is looking to help people and putting on a clinic to help people understand and sort through some of the questions. Guys, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Scott. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Uh, now, just f- for background, just so some people know, uh, if you're thinking, wait a second, Brandon Clark, I think I know that name. Why do I know that name? He is the son of City Councilor Brad Clark, and you may know his name, and Brandon, I hope I'm not bringing up anything out of line here, but people may know your name because a number of years ago, it was Brandon who was injured in a shooting, and this is the first time I've talked to you since then, and I thought, I can't let this go by without asking how you're doing. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's no problem at all. Thanks for asking. 100% now? Everything back to normal and, and good? 110%. Better than I was before. All right. I, I, I have to ask you one more question about this. I know this is not what we're talking about today, but I've never talked to anybody who's been shot before. And can you explain what that feels like? Um, oh, what it feels like. It's painful. Well, I bet. It's, it's, it's scary. You know, it's, it leaves you thinking. It's it, it burns. It's no good. I don't, uh, I don't recommend it on anybody, that's for sure. All right. I, I had to ask because it's just, as I <laughs> no say, I, I don't know that I've ever, I mean, how many of us know someone who's gone through that? And thankfully you're here. Thankfully you're chatting. Thankfully you're good to go and, uh, and happy to hear that. Yeah, that's true. It's not a common thing. So. Well, so. thankfully, thankfully in Hamilton, yeah. it's not. Uh, okay. Let's get to the real issue at hand. You guys yeah. are co-owners of the Treehouse Cannabis Company. Uh, Mike, what is that? So the Treehouse Cannabis Company is going to become a retail operator here locally in Hamilton, Ontario. Not yet, though. You're not selling yet. No, not currently. We're anticipating phase two of licensing. And once that application process goes through, we are optimistic in receiving the approval in our retail operator's license. So, Brandon, one of the things that we've heard anyway from this, and I saw a number today, I should have written it down, but I think it was in the first five and a half months of legalized cannabis sales in Canada, I think the government brought in something like $185 million in taxes. Clearly, people are buying this stuff, and I assume if that's the case, then those who are selling it, if you get one of those few licenses, this is like winning the lottery. Um, that can be true. That number is correct. I saw that as well. Um it's definitely a lucrative business. The issue right now is the black market is still um, thriving quite quite predominantly. So 
Um, I saw some numbers recently come in that over a billion dollars is estimated to have gone through the black market since legalization. So we don't know how accurate those numbers really are, but if that's the case, then uh, it's we're not really going the, the direction that was intended. So we're looking forward to more uh, licenses coming so that there's more opportunities for consumers to get away from the, from the illicit market. Well, some of the other numbers that were released today said the number of Canadians who are using cannabis since legalization has gone from 14% of Canadians to 18%. Uh, the stats say, Mike, many of those, maybe most of that 4% difference are men. I don't know why. Any idea why almost all of the growth in this market, it seems, would be in men? I'm actually pretty shocked to hear that fact because I didn't think there was any kind of discrimination between men or women consuming the product. Uh, we do know that that 18% is also a very conservative low number. Uh, we understand that because of the stigma associated with cannabis, people aren't necessarily coming forward with uh, admitting that they're actually consuming the product. So Brandon, is that uh, I- the fact that the number is going up, and you know this, I'm not telling you something you don't know. There are people who would say that's a good thing, and there are some people who say that's a bad thing. Where do you stand on that? Um, personally, I think it's a good thing. I think um, uh, giving us uh, as Canadians, the opportunity to consume the products that we wish recreationally is a good thing. I think uh, cannabis is a good thing. There's all kinds of benefits associated with the plant. Um, with the Treehouse Cannabis Company going down the recreational route, our hands are sort of tied as far as talking about any uh, medical benefits. But there are there's a, a vast number of benefits associated with the plant. And uh, anybody that speaks with um, a knowledgeable doctor can receive um, some really good information about sort of the medical benefits of the plant. But but the Treehouse Cannabis Company is solely a recreational retailer, so we can't really comment or or offer any medical advice. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Brandon Clark and Mike Dimkevich. They are the co-owners of the Treehouse Cannabis Company. And next Tuesday, they'll be hosting a seminar to answer questions about the new world of legal cannabis in this country. Uh, It's called Cannabis 101. And Brandon, uh, it's been eight months now, and I thought that probably a lot of people would have figured the way around this by now, but do people still have questions about this? Oh, absolutely. There's tons of questions. It's been been a stigma and, and a taboo subject for so long that a lot of people, even if they were curious, really had no means to get their questions answered. Um, we participated in a similar seminar out in Stratford not too long ago, and uh, the feedback and the amount of questions from the from the crowd was really something. So there's a ton of questions out there, and we're really looking forward to answering them at, at the Cannabis 101 presentation. So, Mike, what? give me a one or two of the more common questions that you would get about this right now. So people are really serious about the effects of THC and CBD right now. Those are two molecular compounds found within the cannabis plant. And so they want to know what the effects are, what the associated potential risks are, and some of the benefits as well. So people are really trying to identify how this plant can uh, help them in their everyday lifestyle. I am, honestly, I am encouraged when you use the word risks, because I still have some concerns about some parts of this legislation, particularly we see in a lot of studies that say that especially people under 25, 26, it can still have an impact on their brains. You know, the older people do what you want, but how many people who are coming in who are younger are asking questions about the risks side of this? 
Well, we, we don't have a store for anyone to come into to ask these questions right now, so we're not being asked specifically um, questions in that way. But uh, like I said, uh, um, at that other seminar that we were a part of, and we were, we were also involved in Hamilton Hemp Fest recently, and those questions are coming up. There's a lot of concerned, um, not only curious minds, but also concerned parents thinking, hey, my children mm. may find access to this coming up. What are the risks involved and, and what are the potential outcomes if they use the product? So, so the curiosity is absolutely there. And, um, and like I said, we're, we're looking forward to answering as many questions as possible at the presentation. That's the younger end. And as I say, I, I think we can agree or disagree. I'm not sure, but that, that's an area of concern. What about older people? Because this is one of the places that I've found interesting since it's become legal. We're hearing stories that a lot of people who may be considerably older, who have never touched the stuff before, are trying it now because they're allowed to. Are you seeing them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, just to touch back on Stratford again, and it may be the demographic there, but um, the crowd was predominantly, I would say, uh, 50 years or older um, that, that came to the presentation out there to ask questions. And as Mike alluded to earlier, their, their predominant uh, question, line of questioning was all about CBD. Um, now, uh, as, as I touched on earlier, we're recreational, so we're not able to offer medical advice, but uh, we can discuss a little bit about what CBD is and what some of the outcomes and effects of abuse really are. And, um, and, and again, yeah, the, the questions are, are really all over the place as far as, as what is CBD going to do to me? Is what I've heard from my cousin true? And is what I've heard from the cab driver true? And there's all kinds of rumors going around. So we really want to just be able to educate um, as efficiently as possible. So these are not just people who have watched Cheech and Chong movies. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and we really liked your intro music if you had. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But so, but some of these people are older people who have never tried it, but because it's legal, will now take a take a crack at it. Yes, whether they've never tried it at all or they just haven't really talked about having tried it in the past. Now that it's legal, they can really um, research and and really find out what it's going to do, what what they would like it to do. And then and ask the right questions and get as much information as they can before they make any purchasing decision. Clearly, I mean, you guys are in a business, and and I understand that. And part of that business, especially if you get your license eventually to sell this stuff, it's a business, and you're wanting to make money and you're wanting to promote the product. I get all that stuff. Are there some people though that you would say should not be using cannabis, or is it okay for everybody? Anybody under the age of 19, it's kind of what you alluded to earlier, how there are some effects and risks associated with the brain. So we have, there are studies showing that. So what we want to do is basically allow people to understand that if you do use it chronically at a younger age, you will. there are possible risks associated with it. Well, thing, sorry, just to, just yeah, to jump in. That, uh, there's also um, important that all, all of our staff are trained to not serve anyone who's intoxicated. Anyone that's been consuming alcohol or too much cannabis already will have uh, potentially adverse effects from cannabis. So, so that's another uh, big thing that we watch for. We're, we just have about a minute left here, but how many, if the license is in, what was it, phase two, I think you described it as, how many stores, how many storefronts should we have in this city selling cannabis? Well, the illicit market supported upwards of 80. Now, those are rumors. Um, I know just from driving through the city, those have got to be close to true. There is a ridiculous amount of illicit stores. Um, there's only been two out of the 25 lottery winners from phase one of licensing that have been able to open in the city. Um, but we're expecting Hamilton to easily be able to support 30, 40, or more licensed wow. retailers once the ball gets rolling. There's, there's a huge demand in Hamilton, 
and uh, and we think easily easily that number can be supported. Very quickly, if someone wants to go to this seminar and ask questions, where would they find the information, or where is the seminar? Yeah, so you can go on our website www.thetreehousecannabisco.com. Just scroll down on the home page, and you'll see upcoming events. And Cannabis 101 is the first one. Um, seating is expected to be a little bit tight, so we're going to ask people to register online if they know for sure they're coming. We can also accept people at the door, but if the seats are full, we're going to have to leave them for the people that have registered. Um, it's June 25th at 7 p.m. at Mohawk College, uh, 135 Fennel Avenue West, in classroom I-109. The Treehouse Cannabis Co.? Yes, okay. yes thetreehousecannabisco.com. Appreciate the time, guys. Brandon, Mike, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Friday in Vancouver is the NHL draft. Uh, Over the years, I have had the great opportunity to speak to an awful lot of local players who have been eligible eligible to be chosen, have been in the draft, have been drafted. It's always an exciting time. I'll tell you my two, very quickly, my two favorite stories. One of them was back in 2012. Mark Jankowski, who's a Dundas guy, was taken in the first round by the Calgary Flames way before anyone possibly thought that he was going to be taken. He had no idea he was even being considered in the first round, and the look on his face was perfect. Complete shock. Nobody had him on their boards. Even TSN, when they were doing the the coverage, they couldn't even find graphics fast enough to get it because they had no expectation. It was great. Uh, the other one, my absolute favorite, Drew Schistel, Hamilton guy, St. Thomas Moore grad, He was not expected to go in the first round, and Dad had been sitting with him in the arena drinking coffee furiously because he was nervous, and eventually, you know, you drink enough coffee, something's got to happen, so Dad excuses himself to go and have a little pee, and when he comes back from the bathroom, the whole family is gone, and he looks down on the stage, and there's his son on the stage. He'd been called already, so you, you do all those drives to the rinks, all those many, many times, and you actually miss the call. Oh, well, his son played. Anyway, my next guest could be the next guy with a story because he is the highest ranked local player in the draft this year. Some mock drafts that are around online and elsewhere have him going in the first round. At least two mock drafts that I saw had him landing with the Tampa Bay Lightning. His name is Jamison Reese. He joins me now. Jamison, how are you? Good, you? I'm excellent. I know you're already out in Vancouver. Have you had time to stand in front of the mirror and work on the... I'm not going to get looking goofy when they call my name. I'm going to keep a stoic, cool face when the camera's on me. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely a little bit nervous, but uh, <laughs> I haven't done that. You've, you've seen the guys who overreact, and they end up on the highlight reels with the big, gigantic grin. I mean, I guess you can't help it if it happens, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just can't control your emotions. It is pretty exciting, though. I mean, this is something... How, when did you really start to think when you were a kid or somewhere along the way, when did you really start to think hockey, that this could happen, that maybe hockey could be something? I mean, obviously I've always dreamed about it as a kid, but um, I mean, the last obviously couple of years, I would say five five years, I mean, with the OHL draft, and then I mean, obviously it's just a little step, but there's but a yeah, step to come, right? But every kid, every, you're right, every kid who's ever played the game has always dreamed or imagined that this could happen, but it, it, there's a certain point at which you realize you're better than most of the other players and that maybe there is a chance that you could make something out of hockey. And so that's what f- you say five or six years ago that it started to dawn on you that you were, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be immodest. I'll say it for you, but that you were better than a lot of the other guys. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say that. Five or six years. All right. Um, was there any doubt coming up to this? Was there any doubt that you were going to go to Vancouver and be there for the draft? I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's no guarantee that I, I get drafted, but um, if my odds aren't weren't high, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't be here. So. You heard from either your agent or from teams or whatever. I mean, there is interest in you. As I say, I've seen mock drafts that have you in the first round, maybe early in the second, but uh, it, it would be something bonkers if you didn't get drafted. So it makes it reasonably comfortable to go out there. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever heard those stories of the guys who go and they don't get drafted and they're still sitting in the arena when everyone else has gone home and it's just them and the janitors? Uh, no, I have not heard that story. <laughs> there have been a few guys that have gone, and then the seventh round rolls around, and they haven't been called. And That would be a horrible feeling to have to slink out of the arena having gone all that way, but you, you won't have to deal with that. Um, you've been out there already since the start of this week. As I say, it is in Vancouver. What do you, what do, you do when you're out there? Do they, does the NHL put together a full schedule for the guys who are going to be drafted, or are you basically on your own for the whole week? Um, yeah, I'm basically on my own, like, with my busy schedule, I mean, I haven't really had a lot of time to go on vacation. So uh, me and my family went out a couple of days early, and we were at Whistler yesterday, and uh, went down and saw the sea the seawall today. So, do they? The NHL knows you're there, I'm assuming, but is it only like the top two or three guys then that have to do all the media stuff? Are you essentially allowed to just show up on Friday, and that's what you do? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, I have no idea. I mean, okay. as, as it gets closer, I mean, I'll probably find out. But right now, like I said, uh, with my, my family right now, um, at some point I, I will be with my agent, and I'm sure I'll find out more, right? Are you, are you just eager for Friday to come? Do you just want it to be here? Oh, yeah. Just get it over with? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's it's a great thing, but as you said off the top, th- there have to be some nerves. This is... This is your life that we're talking about. This is the this is your career that we're about to find out what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely moments where I kind of get caught up in it. I'm just sort of stuck thinking about it for a little bit. So, I I don't expect you to tell me the team name, and I won't put you on the spot with that. But in your head, are there one or two teams or three teams, whatever? that you have gone down the list and gone, man, I, I would love it if they drafted me. There, there's got to be something in your head that you have some preferences. I mean, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, it's not my decision. So, I mean, I'm, I'll obviously be happy with wherever I land. So. But when you, but Jameson, when you're thinking that, when that goes through your head, what is the motivation for that? Is it because they're a great team? Is it because it's a team you grew up watching? Is it because it's a team that maybe doesn't have a lot of depth at your position, so the path to the NHL is quicker? What what would make it enticing for you for a team to draft you? I mean, those are all good factors and factors that I definitely take into consideration when I think about it. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter, right? As long as someone calls you. Yes. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Jameson Reese, Hamilton hockey player. He's going to be drafted this weekend in Vancouver in the NHL draft. His days to drive the Zamboni will be long down the road when he's retired and working in the local rink after he's had a long, prosperous NHL career. Uh, He's already in Vancouver, though, for the draft. Jameson, just before the break, I was saying, you know, without making you tell us what team, whether there were one or two that you would particularly love to be drafted by. Are there, and again, without naming the team, unless you want to, 
Is there any team that you're looking at going, oh, please don't take me? <laughs> um, no. No, you're no, okay with any all. of them? Yeah. All right. Sure. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. This um, getting drafted, which you will be, uh, is going to put the exclamation mark on a uh, exclamation mark on a pretty wild year for you. You've had a lot going on over the last season or so. Walk us through what's happened for you in the last twelve months, because there's a lot. Um. So I, I represented Canada at the Olinka Gutsky Cup last summer, uh, which uh, we ended up winning. Um. And then I went into my season with Sarnia um, and missed some time uh, through injury. With a lacerated kidney? Yes. How, how do you get a lacerated kidney in hockey? Uh, just, uh, just got a cross check and it caught me right in the right spot and I sort of opened up. I don't know. It just seemed like when I was watching the video, it just seemed like a, a bunch of things had to happen for, for it to happen, if you know what I'm saying. Did you know immediately something was really wrong, or did you just think it was a, a sore from sore a bruise or something from a cross check? Yeah, I just thought like I don't know, I strained strained my back or something. So I just and there's obviously not really a way of of telling. So I just kind of played through it, finished the game off, and yeah, nice. Okay, so you finally get back from that. You get a suspension after that. You get uh, out of the playoffs early, too early. For, I mean, uh, you you were great. The team, you know, it had a bit of a good rough go. I'm wondering if at any point when you're missing this much time in your draft year, if it starts to go through your mind of, oh, geez, I hope the scouts are still with me here. I hope, they, I hope they're still seeing what they want to see as opposed to, I've missed a lot of time. I hope this doesn't hurt me. Well, I mean, yeah, for sure. It's definitely it's one of worked towards my whole life, and to to miss this much hockey is obviously upsetting. But I mean, for what I did and for the times that I was in, I think I, I showed that I, I'm capable of being one of the top players in the draft. So, how much, Jamison? How much of the draft and what was coming up this week? gets in your head during the year. It, I would think, uh, for me, maybe you're different from me, I would think for me that would be just something that would have been so hard to not be thinking about through the year, that this is my draft year. Is, it, mean, is it difficult? Uh, uh, for myself, honestly, I don't find it too difficult. I think the way for me to play my best game, I, I can't have things like that on my mind. So if I just sort of stay calm and just think about playing hockey, that at the end of the day, it'll all work out for me. Do you have to tell yourself that sometimes? Just forget about it? Or is it just I mean, never there? I mean, sometimes, yeah. But obviously, when I'm in game, I'm not I'm not thinking about who's there. I'm thinking about what's going sure. on in the game. So. Sure. Do you ever, uh, when you read stuff, do, I mean, would you ever go online during the year and look at any of the mock drafts or anything to see where you stand? I mean, obviously, I get notifications to them on Twitter and, and whatnot. But, I mean... I don't look too much into it at the end of the day. It's, it's not, I mean, obviously people are going to see that, but at the end of the day, they don't, they don't make the final decision. So do you ever, did you, or do you talk to other players who have gone through this already? I mean, there's a bunch of guys from Hamilton who are now in the NHL or were in the NHL. Do you ever chat with anybody to say, how did you deal with it? Or did you just find your own way? I mean, uh, my, my agent helps me out a little bit. I mean, I mean, I know some guys that have, have went to the draft and obviously talked about the combine and going into that and what to expect. So, so this this Friday, uh, does it matter to you? By the way, 
because a lot of guys, guys who make it this far, there's a couple things about them. One is they're really good hockey players. Two is that they work really hard to make themselves good hockey players. And three is that they are ultra, ultra competitive. I don't know anybody who can get to where you are without being super competitive. So does it matter to you if you go in the first or the second round? I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a one day thing. And as much as it would nice be nice to go in the first round, it's one day, one day isn't going to describe my future. Like, like, like there's going to be guys that go later than me that end up playing professional hockey, right? So sure. At the end of the day, it's one day, and <laughs> they're not going to be looking at your draft and saying, well, this guy won the third round, and this guy won the fifth round, so we're going to take the guy in the third. It's not how it works. Like, if the guy that won in the fifth round, or even undrafted, yep. turns out to be a better hockey player, obviously they're going to, Right. So, all right, so Friday night, uh, we'll be watching for Jamison Reese. As I say, Hamilton guy, played with the Sarnia Sting. Last thing, who, when you're sitting in the stands, uh, you know your family, who's going to be more nervous when this is all going on, you or your parents? <laughs> uh, definitely my parents. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be calming them down? <laughs> for sure. Listen, it is, uh, it's a great story, and I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time, and we hope that Friday is fantastic for you. We hope it's a memorable day. I know it will be. When, whenever you're called, it's going to be memorable, and I, 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 hope it, uh, I hope all the work that you've put in and all the time is, uh, pays off and is worth it. Appreciate it, Jameson. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Uh, again, look for, uh, for Jameson Reese, R-E-E-S. All right, look for his name when you're, if you're watching the draft, when you're watching the draft, Hamilton guy. We've had a lot of Hamilton hockey players in recent years who have had their names called, and a lot of players who have made it to the NHL, whether for a long stretch or for a few games. But keep an eye on Jamison Reese. That's uh, that's the latest one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know all about Alcatraz. You've seen pictures. You've probably watched documentaries. You've seen movies. You watched Clint Eastwood Escape from Alcatraz. It is a legendary place. It is a place that we all have visions of and imagine what it was like and all the rest. In your mind, you have some thought, probably not accurate, but some thought of what it must have been like in there. It was isolated, isolated. it was foreboding, it was intimidating, all those different words. Well, I was there not that long ago, thankfully not as a prisoner, but just as a tourist, like so many others. It's now one of the biggest tourist attractions in the United States. And all of those words are accurate. But there are apparently only six men who are still alive, who are still with us, who were once upon a time inmates at Alcatraz, who had to live there when the prison was at its most daunting, at its most intimidating, at its most whatever you want to apply. Uh, His name, one of them anyway, is Bill Baker. He's 85 years old now, but once upon a time, he was inmate number 1259. While I was there, I bumped into Bill. He was selling books in the gift shop, believe it or not. We'll talk about that in a moment. And I said, would you come on the show? And he said, absolutely. So we're chatting with Bill Baker. I talked to him recently, just the other day. We recorded it. Here's Bill Baker. Bill, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking the time today. Do you remember the day you arrived at Alcatraz? I remember it very well. What what was it? What do you remember? Well, first of all, they put us on the Captain Johnson boat. It was a little boat, and up 
like the big cruiser you uh, rode on, but uh, quite a bit smaller. It was January 8th, 1957. It was foggy. It was cold, as it usually is in the bay at that time of year. And we headed for the island. And just before we got there, the fog sort of split, lifted enough to work and see that building. And man, it was like seeing the end of the world. Seeing the prison building up on top of that, it looked like a ghost up there. You, I'll be honest with you. You knew about the prison's reputation by that time, right? Before you got there, you knew what it was all about. Yes, I did. And I was 23 years old, and I was honestly, I was, I was worried about it. This was, this was, now, uh, Al Capone had already been there. Everybody knows Al Capone was there, but this was long after he had been there. But I'm guessing that anybody, anywhere, especially someone who had been involved in crime, I guess, as you had, would have known lots about this place. Well, quite a bit, but uh, not the details, you know, not every little detail. Because there wasn't all that many people on Alcatraz and in the, in the entire history of it then. So uh, we had no way of uh, really knowing the everyday routine of it or anything like that, you know what I mean? You were, um, obviously, you were sent there why? Let's do a little background here. You, Why did you end up on Alcatraz? For what? I went there for escaping from other prisons. Everybody who went there, with the exceptional few, went there for breaking rules in other prisons. That's where they sent you for a timeout. Most of the people there, the stories are, the legends are, anyway, most of the people there were bad, bad men, correct? That's correct, yes. Were you a bad man at that time? Would you categorize yourself that way? Well, I thought I was a pretty good guy. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel you belonged there then? Well, no, what they, the deal on that is that they consider escaping worse than anything in the world. Prison authorities determine who goes to Alcatraz, not the judge. And they hate people who escape from prison. So that, that meant you were obviously, how many times had you escaped from a prison or tried to escape before? Up until that time, I was only 23 when I went there. I was locked up when I was 18. And I attempted three escapes. I failed twice. I made it once. And you were, Bill, you were originally locked up for what? What got you into prison in the first place? In the first place, when I was 18, I stole a car up in Oregon. Went to the Oregon State Prison for that and wound up here when I was 23 for escaping. You know, with what we know about Alcatraz, stealing a car, I, I know the escapes obviously are the reason, but it, it seems like it's its at the low end of what many of the people in that prison would have been there for. Absolutely, but uh, actually most of the people in that prison were in there for money crimes, with the exception of some uh, uh, military prisoners who were there under a different jurisdiction, you understand? But our U.S. penitentiary prisoners were originally sent there for uh, money crimes, for trying to get money. I know you can read the roster that they put on the Internet, and it doesn't seem that way sometimes because 
on that roster is listed the crime they committed while in prison to get sent there instead of the original crime. You know what I mean? Right. So when you get off that little boat that day, uh, first of all, were you, you said you were worried. In, it, it, does worried equal scared? Were, I mean, you're a tough guy. Were you scared when you stepped off that boat? Well, yes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Superman. <laughs> Alcatraz had a very bad reputation. And when you went through the doors, when they start to process you and you step inside, was it as bad as the reputation? Yes, it was. Tell me about what, what anyone who's been, and I'm, I'm assuming many people who are listening right now have been there on a tour, have visited. Uh, they have a rough idea. People have seen it on television. Back then, what was the place like when you walked in? Well, when we, first of all, when we walked in, we went into the basement of the cell house building, and and there we were processed, and we were questioned by a lieutenant and several guards, and then the uh, the uh, hospital staff came down, the MTAs they called them, the medical technical assistants back then. There were male nurses uh, for all practical reasons, and of course they examined us and bend over, spread them, and all that. You know what I mean? Not exactly nice. Not not a nice start. No, not a nice start. Uh, and then, of course, we were after we were processed. We were taken up. We were taken into the shower room where we were given a shower, and uh, then issued our clothing, blankets, uh, sheets, pillowcases, uh, and a set of earphones. And then we were taken upstairs and put in a cell. And that's where we stayed for about five or six days in quarantine while they finished the medical uh, quarantine part of it. And I remember very well the first day I went to the yard. Of course, I didn't have any close contact with uh, other prisoners until that time when we first went to the yard. And I remember that very well because that was when it was, you know, if anything happened, it would probably happen there on the yard. So I was pumped up. You know, I was ready to either fight or run, whatever I had to do. And so we went to the yard, and I'll be doggone, nobody paid no attention to me. They were playing cards. We were playing ball. They were walking up and down, talking about women and, and uh, robbing banks and stuff like that. They were talking about robbing banks in the yard. Well, yeah, you know, crime is different. <laughs> Talking about the past mainly, and maybe the future too. But you know, they were—they uh, were not any like anything like I, I thought they would be. What you had you thought? I mean? and, what did you thought, Bill? What did you expected when you walked out there? I know you said that you had your backup to be ready, but what did you expected might happen? Well, you know, I expected maybe here a group of guys would be catcalling and and, and uh, egging me on, maybe, uh, and uh, and maybe some more guys would bump into me or something accidentally and on purpose and stuff like that. And I would have to either, uh, you know, I'd have to stand up. And, but at that time, I'll tell you, after when that happened. At that time, I made the worst judgment I ever made in my life, I believe, because I was relieved and and sort of let down, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Being pumped up 
been let down. It was, uh, and to my judgment at that time, I said, man, these guys ain't so tough after all. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah. I've been used to, uh, used to other, you know, what tough guys in other prisons weren't the same as tough guys in this prison. And I learned later on that these there were some very bad people here. Even when I mean bad, I mean dangerous and, and all of that. But they don't, these guys didn't walk around pounding on their chest or talking out of the side of their mouth like Hollywood gangsters and all that stuff. And uh, I honestly uh, expected something different when I walked to the yard, but uh, there was no bullies here. There's absolutely no bullies. There's too many bad men to have bullies here. They'd a, a bully would have got hurt real quick. You said, though, <laughs> you know what I mean? You said, though, that you learned yeah. that later. To, that, what, what happened later that I made you realize? Well, just over a period of time, you know, when I saw there were, when there was trouble, then you saw what of how man handles trouble. And, uh, for example, a guy named Simcoe, S-I-M-C-O-X, he was the most dangerous man that ever walked that yard. And he was young, looked like a college student, handsome, did push-ups standing on his head. And he was very dangerous, but he was also the most polite, respectful man I ever saw in my life. And he was very interesting. I played cards with him a lot and talked to him. (coughs) And this guy sort of exemplified what, most people on the, and most prisoners were, and that is that they were they were not bullies. In fact, it was very easy to make friends here, and and very easy to to not have any problems at all, as long as you carried yourself like a man and didn't uh, be running your mouth up in somebody's chest. You know what I mean. What was the worst thing you saw ever in the yard? Because you must have seen stuff while you were there. I did, but not all that often. There was, you know, you saw maybe a... But the problem was that when you saw a fight, it was usually very serious and and, uh, could end badly, you know what I mean? So you hardly ever saw a fight anywhere, especially not in the mess hall, as many believe. Uh, that mess hall was probably the safest place in the old prison because they had all kinds of guards there and then guns on the catwalk outside and, and uh, you know, they were prepared for any kind of trouble in that mess hall. So there was hardly ever, I saw a, a guy get stabbed in the back in there and in the mess hall. And old fat Mitchell, Lieutenant Mitchell, jumped all the way over the steam table, and before he could stab him again, he had his he had his wrist and got that hmm. knife away from him. Yeah, ba- yeah that was amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, you hadn't you hadn't seen something like that before? No, no, I had not. Back when you're in your cell, and and how how much of the day was actually spent in your cell as opposed to out where you could be with other people? A normal day, if you worked, uh, the normal time spent in the cell was about 16 hours. And what was your cell like? 
Well, it was six by nine foot. You could reach, touch both sides of the wall with, if you stretched your hands out in the opposite direction. And uh, very small. Any comforts? I mean, you have, a, 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 as you said, some bed linens and things like that and a blanket, but were there any things in there that made it tolerable? Oh, yeah. uh, well, it was, like I said, we had a, a toilet, a sink, a shelf in the back wall above the toilet, and we had a little fold-down uh, metal desk on the opposite side of where the bunk was on one side and the little desk was on the other. You actually had to fold the desk out of the way in order to walk from the back to the front. It was that narrow, but uh, a little fold-down desk. And you put your clothes and your issue on the shelf and back. And, and you had a steel bunk and a thin mattress, you know, about two or three inches thick. Well, maybe three or four. Not very thick, but anyway. And it was, uh, you know, you could handle it. Do you have a window? Could you see outside at all? No, there was no windows. There were windows in the cell block, and you could see out of your cell and across the hall and then out the window if you were on the the uh, C block on the outside. And, uh, but if you were on the, the middle, what they call Broadway, if you were on one of the cells in either either B or C, you couldn't see out a window. So it was just the one side. So, Bill, when you're in these cells and you're not out working, uh, what do you do to pass the time? 16 hours a day. I mean, you're going to sleep for part of that, but that's a long time. What do you do to make the time go by? Well, I said 16 hours, and that's if you had a job and you were working. If you didn't have a job, it was 24 hours a day you were huh. locked in your cell. They, did, they didn't have any laws back then where they had to give you an hour of recreation every day. <laughs> and Monday through Friday, while well, we're on the subject, Monday through Friday, regardless of what you did, there was no recreation, period. So... uh but when you were in your cell, as you were saying, when you were in your cell, you could read books. They had a library there. They had a, a lot of, uh, especially a lot of fiction books. I read a lot of Zane Gray cowboy books then. And that's that's what I read at that age. But uh, you also had, like I said, your issue was a pair of earphones, and you could plug them in. Jacks in the wall. They had two jacks, and one one was the uh, regular programming at that time, and one was for sports. So you could listen to the radio. You had a a guard out there running the radio, and in the control room, and he listened to both channels and made sure that uh, when the news came on, that there was no mention of anything that they considered uh, uh, provoking, uh, like a riot or in another prison or or mafioso stuff mm. or, you know, that sort of stuff. And he would actually turn the radio off in the middle of it, of the news, if anything uh, came on like that. 
and then everybody would grab their tin cups and pound on the wall on the bar just to let him know that we were there too. <laughs> During the tour, and, and for people who don't know, when you go through Alcatraz now, there's an audio tour, you wear a headphone and it tells a story. One of the things that was pointed out, and maybe it was on the signs, I can't remember, this kind of life is, uh, now it's not supposed to be easy, but it's not easy. And there were people that it had a huge negative impact on them, on their mental state. Um, could you hear those people? When, when people were having a tough time, you probably couldn't ever avoid it because it's all just barred doors. You would hear when someone was breaking down. Yeah, but that doesn't happen every day. Uh, I tell you, we were a bunch of hard-headed convicts. We came from other prisons for breaking rules, like I said, and we were used to that kind of life before we ever got there. We'd been in the hole many times, broke a lot of rules, and, and I'm not trying to talk tough. I'm just saying that we knew what to expect and uh, as far as rules go and we could pretty much handle it you know we, we, when we get Alcatraz we were well to be honest with you we were jailing you know what I mean we were making homebrew getting drunk we were uh, betting on ball games and you know we found ways to, to put a little excitement into it <laughs> and we did that said, Bill, you, you mentioned before you could glance a little bit through a window and maybe see across to San Francisco, or when you were in the recreation lar- yard, you would be able to see that. Was there ever a sense, because of the isolation, because it was the island, because everything else, was there ever a sense of hopelessness that you were stuck there and you were just never getting out? No. Uh, there were with some people. Of course, everybody experienced Alcatraz in their own way depending on who they were and how much time they had. But everybody had a definite sentence, you understand. There was no indefinite mm. sentences at that time. So they knew when they were getting out. And usually Alcatraz was not a permanent uh, thing anyway. They sent us there for punishment or for containment if we were escape risk. And uh, usually they spent three to five years there. And then they'd ship you back to the prison you came from, especially if uh, you could not make a parole from Alcatraz. It was impossible. They never issued a parole from Alcatraz, and so you had to get transferred back to the prison you came from to even uh, have a chance to make a parole. We understand. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. And we are going to pick up our conversation that we had a little earlier, recorded this a little earlier with Bill Baker, inmate number 1259 from Alcatraz. Once upon a time, he's now 85, one of the six surviving former inmates from that prison. Here's Bill Baker. As a guy who had a history of escape, did you ever think about escaping? Did you ever start to plan an escape or or wonder how you could do it? Yeah, I thought about it a lot, but... uh... 22-year-old skinny kids don't do well in cold water. You know what I mean? I could never... Yeah, I could never figure out how to beat the water. But you were thinking about it, trying to figure out a plan. Of course. I thought about it a lot. Were you there? I I know there were attempts at escapes by others, and you would have been gone... Uh, by 1962 when the most famous attempt ever happened, but were you there when anyone ever tried? Yes, of course. Uh, Aaron, Aaron Burgett, A-A-R-O-N, Burgett, 
In fact, he worked with me down in the glove shop and and uh, became a pretty good friend. And he tried while I was there. In fact, he they he had a very elaborate plan where he made himself some water wings out of the garbage bags and blew them up with air. In fact, he tested them out in the mop sink down in the glove shop, filled them up with air and put them in the water, you know, and pushed on them and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yes, in fact, he, uh, him and Clyde Johnson attempted it together, both of them bank robbers. Well, Forget wasn't really a bank robber. He told everybody it was, but when we, after we later when we saw his record, he was a post office robber. Mm-hmm. I guess he felt that it gave him a little more prestige if he said that he was a bank robber instead of a post office robber. And what happened with anyway, their attempt? What happened with their attempt? Did they? How far did they get? Well, they uh, first of all they put on extra clothing to insulate themselves against the water, and then they put the water wings over on, all over the clothing. And when they hit the water, uh, Clyde Johnson saw Forget going down, and he managed to hang on to a rock out there called Little Alcatraz, and, and he didn't drown. Forget drowned. The water wings broke, and that extra clothing absorbed the water and took him straight down. Now, he was a young man, strong as a mule. He could swim, but all that extra clothing just drug him right down. Do you believe anybody could have escaped? Because, I mean, there's still questions about those guys in 62, whether they made it. They were the the famous ones. What do you think happened with them? Well, that created a great mystery, that's for sure. Is it possible? Is it possible they could have succeeded from your experience? Absolutely. Of course, yes, absolutely. You know, people are swimming at routinely nowadays. Uh, teenagers, young boys, a cocker spaniel swimmers. So it is possible, but you need to be able to train in the water and get your body used to the cold. And then, if you can, you need to put on a, a, a wetsuit. But they wouldn't sell us wetsuits, and they wouldn't let us practice <laughs> in the water. So. I guess not. Did you know any of those three guys that were, as I say, part of the escape from Alcatraz? That's what the movie with Clint Eastwood. Did you know any of those guys? I met uh, uh, Frank, uh, what you call it, one time. Frank Morris. I met him a few times. And... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's high probable, I believe, that they made it to shore. Hmm. And I say that for many reasons. One reason being that it took them over a year to plan and execute that escape. They were very quiet about it. They didn't, didn't let the guards know, and they did some amazing things. And they, they also didn't let the snitches know. That's how quiet they were. So if they were free now, or had been free, I don't believe that they would be in a bar bragging about it. Yeah, I, I guess know. not. If somebody you was know, going, it, Bill, if somebody was going to try to escape, would the and if any yeah. of the other prisoners knew about it, would the other prisoners be quietly cheering for them to succeed, or would they be hoping they got caught? Would you be hoping they were successful? 
Of course. Yeah, everybody would be hoping it would be successful. But nevertheless, wherever you have desperate men, you have snitches mm. hoping for a free ticket off the island. You know what I mean? And so you have to be quiet. You cannot be talking about escaping. That's one word you never use because the snitches are walking around with antennas up their ears. You know what I mean? Trying to just trying to feel, you know, in desperation, trying to find out any way to get out of to get off that island. It does so. sound it does sound like there was some level of a bond. I mean, you talk about guys as your friends. That there was there was a bond among the many or some of the guys who were on there. It wasn't just every man for himself. Absolutely not. I have some very good friends, and a couple of them I've met again and again throughout life. And I'll tell you something, as far as I'm concerned, you know, again, I'm not trying to talk soft. I'm just trying to, it is what it is. And all the wards are dead. I survived it. And uh, it, when I go back to that island today, it's my friends that I remember. I don't remember, I, I remember the bad stuff, but that's not even important compared to to the guys I knew there. You mentioned the wardens. Like a, you mentioned the wardens. Uh, what was the relationship like between the wardens and the inmates? Were they decent people or were they difficult? Well, that's a hard question to ask now. You know, to us, they were assholes at that time. But they really, uh, uh, they deserve some respect, you know, because they were absolute uh, rulers of that island. You know, there's no question about that. And they did enforce some very bad rules. So, but, uh, most of, to be honest with you, most of them were decent, as were the guards. The guards were very professional. They were well paid. And, uh, they didn't love us and didn't hate us. You know, they were vigilant. They were watchful. And, and uh, so I don't really have a problem with the guards. It's, they did have a goon squad, though, that was very lethal. If they had to call a goon squad, then <laughs> they were some bad boys there. You actually, if I recall correctly, you went back to the island five or six or seven years ago and met with one of the old guards, right? You, I mean, you shook, shook his hand and it, it was okay. Yes, absolutely. I have a lot of respect for uh most of the old guards, you know, there, because, like I said, they were professional. They were not petty. And I hate a petty guard, you know, that comes in there and tries to, uh, uh, looks at your bed, writes you up if it ain't made perfectly, or if you got a few packs of extra cigarettes beyond, uh, you know, that you're not supposed to have, he writes you up. Now, the, the old guards, they were not, trip on that kind of stuff. If they had too many packs of cigarettes, they let it go. They wouldn't even bother with it. And if they shook their cell down, for example, looking for contraband, as they did often and routinely, they would actually make your bed back. Hmm. They wouldn't make it perfectly, but they'd tidy up after they left. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. See, we had respect for them, and they had respect for us. Of course, we hated them. No question about that, because they enforced the rules. 
Uh, they had the key that kept us. Uh, yep. Was well, I'll tell you, I met, uh, I met the old promising Paul Madigan, the warden. I met him again uh, many years later. And, uh, another prisoner, he came through there. And uh, the guard pointed him out to him and said, that's William Baker there. He was out there. And old Paul Madigan, I swear, he, I thought he was going to hug me. <laughs> Among afraid if he did, if he hugged me, I'd probably hug him back. Because uh, it was sort of a, you know what I mean, like a sort of a bridge over the river Kwai thing there, where you capture and you're captive, uh, both survived and, and saw each other again. Uh, maybe uh, like the Japanese Americans, you want to go up and over to the <laughs> and meet an old soldier that uh, you fought against. You know, you have respect for him. You understand that? Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I don't, but I do. I mean, I, I, I've not been in that position, obviously, but I, I do understand the, the thought behind it. What about among, we've got only a couple more minutes left here, but with the inmates, was there a pecking order? If you were a no, very famous or very dangerous not. guy, no? No, absolutely not. There was no pecking order. There was no gangs. There was no drugs or nothing at Alcatraz. And, uh, in fact, they didn't even have a store, so you couldn't buy anything if you had all the money in the world. And that level of playing field for people like Capone couldn't use his money to influence uh, anybody. And the guards, like I say, were paid a large amount of money, and I never heard of one case of a guard being bribed by a prisoner, uh, you know, of exception of bribe, I mean. And, yeah. Did you know of, if there was someone particularly famous, while you were there, uh, Robert Stroud was there, the Birdman of Alcatraz, would you be aware that there were very well-known criminals there? Would you cross their paths? Yes, of course. I was there when uh, the Birdman, Creepy Carpus, Frank Lawrence, uh, let me see, uh, uh, Mickey Coyne, a uh, whole bunch of uh, Capone was gone, but uh, the rest of them were there. Now, Capone, when he was there, he he had a rough time because he had syphilis out of his brain and he was in and out of the hospital all the time, so he didn't really wasn't able to exert any influence over anybody. And the Birdman was in solitary confinement for the entire time and had no physical contact with other prisoners uh, except, uh, you know, he would talk to them if they went up to the sick call. He had a cell up there in a hospital, and he would talk to us if we went up for sick call or dental appointment or something. And he could holler out the... Uh, the cell door out of there today. But, uh, there was no, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. I say there was no pecking order at all. There were too many bad boys, mm. uh, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, you, there were just too many uh, people here that wouldn't stand for it <laughs> for anybody trying to boss them around. These are some hard headed convicts here. Mm. Today, uh, Alcatraz is one of the most po- most popular, most visited tourist attractions in the United States. Uh, why do you think that is? What's the fascination with this jail? Certainly, it, it's probably different for you, but do you understand why people are so interested in this? I don't understand it at all. I've been 
out there uh, selling books for the last six years. And but uh, I think there's a. Uh, if I had to break it down, I've thought about it a lot too. But if I had to break it down, most of my books are sold to women. Women read more for one thing, and for one thing, they there's a certain fascination I believe between them and a. Uh, and the outlaws of Alcatraz, you know, that's, and, uh, that's one factor. And uh, I don't know, it's just that history flipped it upside down. History just uh, turned everything upside down. They said, all right, Bill Baker, you can be a hero for a while. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really amazing and it's strange and it's weird and all of those things. But I'm all for it. You know, they come there and 50 years ago they would throw rocks at me, and now they love me. So and I'm okay with that because I need a little love. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean, I found it bizarre to be honest when we went there, and I heard that you were there. I found it bizarre that someone who had been kept captive there would want to come back onto the island and would choose to come back there. It would seem the memories would be so terrible. How did you decide you were going to start doing this? Because it does seem very odd. Yes, I know. But uh, first of all, I wrote a book titled Alcatraz 1259. And uh, I quit criminal activity in uh, 2011 when I got out of prison last time. I wanted to write this book really bad, and, uh, you know, you can't write a book and be on the run from the law, so I quit, and I wrote the book, and when I got it published, I sent a copy out to the head ranger out there. He read it and sent me a plane ticket, so I went out to check it out, and uh, I was fascinated by it because, you know, but all I was, you know, I wasn't thinking about the past at that time, I was thinking, I was, I was very excited about the possibility of becoming a successful writer and making some money, you know. But what was it like and, to uh, go back? What was it like to step back on the island for the first time yeah. after all those years? I'm being honest with you now, trying to, it was not a factor. I wasn't even, it didn't bother me one little hmm. bit. Because I was excited about the possibility of selling books. I spent two years writing that book, and uh, I was broke and I was hungry, and I really wanted to succeed at, at, at writing, you know, as an author. I studied it in prison. I wrote a couple of cowboy books. I wrote short stories, and I honestly studied how to, you know, how to write. Uh, I read while I was at Alcatraz, what probably helped me more than anything, I read about hundreds of books. You know, that's one of the few ways you can pass the time if you're locked in your cell. So anyway, I was not worried about it at all, uh, about Alcatraz. And like I say again, I remember the friends I had here more than the bad part. I know there were some bad parts, you know, this was a very bad place, and and uh, but nevertheless, I uh, I didn't leave there with scars or nightmares. You understand? Mm. And so I didn't bring any back with me. 
The book is called Alcatraz 1259. You can buy it on Amazon. It is available online if you want to read it. His name is Bill Baker or William Baker if you want to look him up as well. Uh, Mr. Baker, I, I sincerely appreciate you taking time today to talk about this. It's a, it's a fascinating story and I appreciate your, uh, your insights. Well, thank you for calling me. And, uh, anytime I can help out, I'll be glad to. That is Bill Baker, former inmate of Alcatraz. Interesting story. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.